Good morning, welcome. First Timothy, chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, I'll read to the end of the chapter. Big numbers, if you're new to the Bible, big numbers are chapters, little numbers are verses. First Timothy, toward the end of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness in speaking to us through the Lord Jesus by his appointed spokesman, the apostles. Help us to clearly understand the word of the Apostle Paul this morning as you speak through him so that we might savor more gratefully your forgiveness toward us as sinners. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I wonder if... Our church, we're running some kind of marketing campaign to show people what Christianity was all about. I wonder if you had the decision, if who you would pick, what kinds of people you would pick to represent us. Who would we want to show off if we were trying to show what Christianity is all about? Would we pick people with happy marriages, well-adjusted children, dozens of Children bouncing around on your knees? Would we pick people with successful careers and comfortable retirements? Maybe we would pick people standing on the steps of Congress holding up the legislation that they've gotten passed. Maybe we would have people volunteering in soup kitchens or marching in protests. Maybe we'd have people studying really big old theology books or running exciting church programs. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is pointing to his own life as a picture of what Christianity is all about, what the Christian church should be all about. All the things I just mentioned are not necessarily bad. Some of them are good and desirable. But Paul does not mention anything like them. He could have. 
He was profoundly intelligent. He was incredibly driven. He was highly educated. As a Pharisee, earlier in his life, he was extremely politically engaged and passionate. But instead, the thing that Paul chooses to focus on, you can see in verse 15. You can see that this is the main point of what he's saying because of how he frames it. He tells his protege, Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Papyrus and ink were expensive in the ancient world. They did not waste any words. And so when an author tells you something like this, it means pay attention. It's really important. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is what the message and the mission of the church of Jesus is all about. Everything else that we do, everything that we say, everything that we are flows out of this. Paul wants his young protege, Timothy, and also us to remember that the heart of Christianity is Jesus rescuing sinners. And he says that his life is a wonderful illustration of that, a dramatic illustration of that in all caps, in bold, underlined, in italics. The first thing Paul describes here is his great sin. His great sin. You see that in verses 12 and 13. Paul has just said at the end of our passage from last week in verse 11, he's just said that God has entrusted him with the gospel, with this good news about Jesus. And so now Paul shifts, having said, I've been entrusted with this message, he shifts to expressing his gratitude for it. He says that Jesus appointed me to his service, even though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Paul had spent his early adulthood, a time when he was extraordinarily successful and popular in the eyes of his society, he spent his early adulthood passionately dedicated to wiping out early Christianity. Paul was utterly convinced that Christianity was a fanatical, destructive, and offensive sect, a cult. He believed this because he saw how it was co-opting his beloved Jewish heritage and faith, but especially he believed this because he thought that it was denigrating and mocking the one true almighty and merciful God by worshiping as God some backwoods and uneducated messianic poser whose pathetic life had ended in failure and shame. Paul thought that he was serving God by imprisoning and even helping to execute the early Christians. But one day, en route to doing more of the same, on his weekly commute, so to speak, the resurrected Lord Jesus knocked Paul to the ground and said to him, Why are you persecuting me? Jesus then conscripted Paul into a lifetime of suffering and service on his behalf. Paul realizes that he's been completely wrong about Jesus and that therefore he's been completely wrong about God. Paul thought that he'd been serving God by crushing these fanatical kooks, 
But having now met and seen the resurrected Jesus, Paul realizes that he has not been fighting sin or evil or heresy, but actually he's been fighting God. He realizes that it's himself who's been the blasphemer all along. Paul's great sin, not only against other people, Christians, but especially against God himself. And so now Paul quickly shifts back in our passage to describing not his great sin, but now his greater Savior. One of the Puritans said that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And Paul wants us to see how his life is a beautiful illustration of that. Paul says that he received mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. That does not mean that our sin or our unbelief automatically moves or forces God to sweep it all under the rug. But instead, what Paul means is that he was not like many of Jesus' contemporaries who spitefully hated Jesus, even though they knew that God was working through him. That's what Jesus very somberly calls the unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Paul's point is that I wasn't like those guys. I didn't quite understand what was going on. I didn't know that God was working through Jesus. But even so, Paul's sin was extremely serious. It fully deserved God's judgment. But when Jesus confronted Paul on his road to Damascus, he did not vaporize Paul like you would expect and like he deserved. But instead, Jesus poured out his mercy and his forgiveness on him. In verse 14, Paul says that the mercy of Jesus overflowed for him. He's using an emphatic word that you could translate as something like superabounded. The word grace literally means gift. And of course, as a good Pharisee, Paul would have known and Paul would have taught that God was gracious and generous toward weak and sinful Israel. But what Paul, back then, and what the Pharisees meant was that God was generous toward those whom he knew would respond well to his generosity. What they meant was that God uh, showed mercy toward people who showed that they were deserving and self-disciplined. They meant that God showed mercy toward those who could pay God back by living a holy and self-disciplined life. They meant that God showed mercy toward those whom he knew would cooperate well with him on the back end of it. But that's not what Paul means here. That's not what the New Testament means when it talks about the grace of God. Paul had been totally wrong about what makes God's grace, grace. Because Jesus poured out his mercy and his forgiveness on Paul in the very midst of his blasphemous hatred toward God. And he did this apart from anything that either Paul had done or would do to earn it or to pay it back. And so that's why he says that God's grace superabounded for me. He says it wasn't just a little sprinkle of grace, like my hose yesterday with about five kinks in it. 
It's not like Paul's saying, I just needed a little bit of help from God. I was just a little bit misguided. But rather, he says, I received a flood of grace, spilling over and flowing out. Paul says in verse 14 that Jesus dumped out his grace with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. He means that he was united to Jesus by the mercy of God so that he's now living in the realm of faith and love. Faith meaning trust and confidence in Jesus and therefore no longer in himself, but also sincere love, like we talked about last week, sincere love toward God and toward other people. Faith and love are the overriding realities of the Christian life. Paul says, I've been mercifully brought into those realities. So Paul's great sin met by Paul's greater Savior. And now in verses 15 to 17, he explains to Timothy that Jesus is also our greater Savior, rescuing us from our great sin. Like we said, Paul turns up the volume a bit here. He says to Timothy, I'm going to tell you something very important, something that you and all Christians must pay very close attention to, something that has to be at the very heart of God's kingdom and church. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The sentence, of course, is very simple, but when you break it down and think about it, it's also very deep. He says, Christ Jesus. The word Christ does not use his last name. It's a title. It means Messiah. It means and it shows that we are talking about a human king, a real person who lived and ate and breathed in our very world. It means we're talking about somebody with God's kingly authority and power, somebody that God has chosen to rule over the world on his behalf. And Paul says this, Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, came into the world. He came from somewhere else. It means that he existed somewhere before he took on a human nature, before he received the human name of Jesus. Because you see, Jesus is God himself. Jesus has always existed through all of eternity in God's perfect glory and majesty. And yet now he has come into our world. He didn't begin here. He already was. He's just entered into here. Uh, It's important to understand, too, that this word world, Jesus Christ came into the world, the word world in the Bible is almost entirely negative. It's not describing a neutral place. Uh, It's not the subject of a, a calm and peaceful nature documentary. Uh, It's let alone not describing a lovely place. When the Bible talks about the world, for example, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, when the Bible talks about the world, it almost always means it as the realm where God is hated, the realm where God is rejected, the realm where God is opposed, and therefore the realm that is under God's curse and marred by all kinds of misery and brokenness and satanic deception. The human Messiah Jesus left his divine, eternal glory to come into this world of blasphemous and twisted rebels. Why did he do this? 
Did he do it to destroy us like we all deserve? Like many people in Israel were eagerly waiting for? No. Paul says he did it all to save sinners. The word order here emphatically says this. He did it to save sinners. Paul puts the word sinners in a place where you wouldn't normally expect it to emphasize how shocking this is. Jesus didn't do this to give us a bit of a boost. Jesus didn't do this to fix a few of our problems. Jesus didn't do this to make us a little more prosperous and comfortable. He did not do this to improve our self-esteem and to make us feel good. He came into the world to save sinners. It means, first of all, that we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. We need to be delivered. And of course, that means that we can't do it ourselves. It means that we're sinners. There's a true sense in which the most important thing about people in the world as it exists, the world as we are born into it, the most important thing about people is not their race. It is not their gender. It is not their vote. It's not their job. It's not their family. It's not their trauma. The most significant thing about us in this world is that even though we were created in God's image to enjoy and reflect him, we are now sinners. We have all broken God's law. We have all rebelled against him. We have all cheated on him. We have all turned away from him. And therefore, we rightly deserve his anger and his wrath. Fifth century pastor, St. Augustine, puts it very starkly and grimly. He says somewhere that the only thing about humans that you can say is good without any kind of qualification or equivocation, the only thing you can say without any qualifying that's good about us is that we exist. That's it. Just the bare fact of our existence. We're sinners. Something is very wrong with us. Paul says that his sin was so heinous, it was so offensive to God that you could consider him to be the greatest sinner of all. But he says in verse 16 that he received great mercy as a great sinner so that the entire world would have a clear example of how profoundly patient and merciful God is. He's saying, if in Jesus God was willing to forgive somebody as evil as Paul, not begrudgingly, but lavishly, super abounding, If he was willing to do that for Paul, then he is certainly willing to do it for anybody who comes to him. In humble dependence, God is glad to give them the eternal life that they don't deserve rather than the eternal death that they do deserve. And so you see now, as Paul is reflecting on God's abundant and undeserved mercy towards sinners, toward himself, and therefore as an example to everybody else, that moves him in verse 17 to burst out in praise and thanksgiving. Paul loses his train of thought quite a bit in his writings. If you've ever read them, this is one of those places. But it's a good thing. He gives glory and honor to God as the king of the ages. That means that God rules over all time and every place. He gives honor and glory to him as the immortal one. He's always lived from himself. He can't ever die 
Paul praises him as the invisible one. He can't be limited. He can't be contained. He can't be comprehended. He doesn't fit into any of our boxes. And Paul praises him as the only God. He is the great and the ultimate and the final reality from whom all being and goodness and truth and beauty come down to us. And so you can see there, Paul is suddenly praising him in all these ways for the ways that he's above us and over us, that he's greater than us. But he's praising him not just because he's over us, but he's praising him precisely and especially because in Jesus, this almighty, unlimited God has come down to us. Because this God, this mighty God, has come down to us to rescue us in mercy and love. If he was willing to do it for Paul the blasphemer, he is certainly willing to do it for you. Paul's great Savior is also our great Savior, no matter what we've done, no matter what we will do. It means that we are not too bad for this good news. We are not too bad for this good news. Some of us think that God could not ever love us. We think constantly God must be out to get us. That maybe God only forgives a little bit of what we've done. But now it's up to us to earn more favor from him. To prove that he shouldn't smack us down. To show to him that we're really truly grateful for what he's given us. Some of us think, you don't understand, I'm worse than Paul. If you knew what I've done, I'm worse than him. And maybe that's true. Maybe some of you, literally, if we were going to stack you up on a spreadsheet, we'd say, yeah, there's, you've done a lot worse things. That might really be true. But Paul's point here is that in Jesus, your almighty creator is eager to also be your merciful father. And so part of the point for us today is this. Don't be too bad for this good news. It is good news for you. God really is this loving. But the fact that Paul's great Savior is also our great Savior also means that we are not too good for this good news. We're not too bad for it, but we're also not too good for it. I think this is probably the greater danger in contemporary America, to think that we don't really need to be saved, that we aren't really that bad. Many people today live or think or act like we're a little just too good for God's mercy, or we treat God's mercy as something much smaller than it really is, just a bit of help, a bit of sentimentality. My grandfather up there in the sky, Santa Claus, is kind of giving me what I want. There's a lot of people today, there's a lot of people who say they're Christians, who find this simple message about Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. There's a lot of us who find this to be pretty boring and blasé. We think that maybe that is something for people who are particularly bad, or maybe for people who are particularly insecure. A lot of people just kind of assume that God owes us his love, that it's his job to forgive us. A lot of us assume that good intentions must be good enough. We're not really sinners, are we? Kind of a strong word. A little distasteful. And a lot of people, so a lot of us don't think we're really sinners. 
But a lot of people also don't think we really need to be saved. Uh, we can do it ourselves. Maybe we need help from God every once in a while. Uh, but, you know, our lives are pretty comfortable. We have quite a bit of money. We can go on pretty nice vacations. We can escape into pretty nice houses. There sure are a lot of movies and shows on Netflix to be distracted with. We've got a lot of doctors, a lot of experts, a lot of politicians. They pretty much seem to be able to solve all of our problems. We don't need to be saved. We can do it ourselves. Things are pretty good here. And so to the extent that people care much at all about church anymore... There are a lot of people who think the church should be focusing on other things besides this simple message about Jesus coming to save sinners. We look to other things like politics, things like social justice, things like making Austin a better place to live, hunkering down to escape from crazy liberals out there somewhere, things like having a nice church full of nice people, doing nice activities, things like giving people pithy tips and tricks about how to raise their kids and save for retirement. Isn't that what the church should be focusing on now? It's kind of offensive, isn't it? To tell people that they're sinners, that they need Jesus to save them so that they can live forever with God beyond the grave. If we bang on that all the time, aren't people going to get turned off? Isn't it going to get old? Aren't people thinking about so many other things right now? besides their personal sin before a holy God. And so the Apostle Paul says, no. He says, this is what Jesus' church is all about. Talking about how we are great sinners, but most of all, talking about how Jesus is a greater Savior. And therefore, living in light of all of that, as we prepare for an eternity of praising God's glorious grace. Everything the church does and is and says flows out of this. That's why Paul says to Timothy now in verse 18, I charge, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Paul said last week in our passage that he has received a charge, a commission, a command from God about this message and this mission to be carried out in the church. And now he says, I pass the charge Onto you. Paul's not quite at the end of his life yet, but he's pretty close to the end of it. And this is the main point of his letter. He's trying to help Timothy to faithfully hand down what he's been given generation to generation until Jesus returns, because when Jesus returns, people will no longer have a chance to repent. Keep passing it down, he says. Rinse, wash, repeat. Paul says to Timothy, this is going to be warfare. He says, I'm telling you about what a great Savior is towards great sinners like me. I'm reminding you that the heart of Christianity is Jesus coming into the world to save sinners because this is going to be really hard. This is what will sustain you in battle. He says, the mission is not going to be easy because then and now, People do not naturally think they are sinners. And people do not naturally like to hear that Jesus must save them. In verse 19, Paul tells Timothy, whom we will see in a little while in the letter, uh, was often prone to being discouraged, was prone to being timid. Paul tells Timothy, 
that the way you're going to wage this warfare is by holding faith and a good conscience. You're not going to take up a sword. You're not going to plant bombs. You're going to hold on to your faith in Jesus, and you're going to cling to a good conscience. He says, keep trusting in Jesus as your Savior from your sin. He says, be diligent to live with a clear conscience before God. Live with integrity, live with humility, live in reverent obedience to God's commands, and repent when you don't. Uh, It seems like every month or two, there is some new headline coming out about some big Christian leader, some big Christian pastor who has fallen into some terrible sin and hypocrisy. And of course, the world scoffs at Christians and the church because of it. These leaders apparently have stopped relying on Jesus as their savior. Perhaps they never really had. They have begun living in apathy or defiance toward God and his wise commands. They have opted instead to treat the church as a stepping stone for their own ambition or greed or pleasure. And so Paul says that when Christian leaders, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, when they abandon a good conscience before God, when they flaunt his commands, when they flaunt his standards for his people, they are making a shipwreck of their faith. And so Paul says to Timothy, don't be like them. Wage this warfare, clinging to your trust in Jesus and a good conscience before God. The flip side of this is don't be like these guys. Don't be like Hymenaeus and Alexander, Christian leaders who have turned out to be hypocrites and charlatans. So that Paul says, I have now excommunicated them from the church. I have removed them out of the church. I have declared to the church and the world, these are no longer Christians as far as I can tell. And he says all that by saying that he's handed them over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme. You see that kind of spatial imagery. He says, inside the church, there is life and healing and forgiveness and safety. But he says, outside the church, there's death, satanic oppression, God's judgment. To remove somebody from the church is a very serious thing because you are moving them metaphorically from the realm of safety into the realm of terrible danger. It might sound really harsh, It might sound really mean, but notice that Paul's aim, as with all church discipline, is that somebody would repent. It's that somebody would be restored back into fellowship with God and his people. He doesn't say, I've done this uh, to punish them. I've done this to show them what meanies they are. He says, I've done this in prayerful hope that they will learn to stop doing it. Church discipline is very important for the health of Jesus' church. There's a lot of churches that don't do church discipline because the elders and or the congregation are too nervous that it will be mean, that people will be unhappy, that the world will think we're silly. But church discipline is very important for the health of the church, not only because unrepentant sin is so destructive inside the church, but because it also communicates to the world That God's grace doesn't really change you like Jesus says it should. It says to the world, Jesus is full of it. You don't have to really believe what he says. This doesn't really mean anything. 
Jesus saves us from our sin, but he never leaves us in our sin. Jesus strengthens us, never as much as we might want, but he does truly strengthen us to grow in greater love for God and neighbor over the course of our lifetimes. Therefore, in a world where people and leaders often claim Jesus, but refuse to actually listen to him, church discipline is very important for preserving and protecting the integrity of Jesus' church, and with it, the integrity of the gospel. It is not loving to communicate to somebody or to communicate to the world that believing in Jesus doesn't really mean anything at the end of the day. But you see, Timothy's hope is also CTK's hope. It's also our hope as a church. Our hope is to keep at the very center of our church and our lives this simple but revolutionary good news that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. Not to give them a smackdown, to save them. I wonder for you how significant this simple message has been in your own life recently. Maybe some of you don't really know Jesus. Uh, and you need to hear from me today that this is what we're all about. You can be saved, rescued too. But even as Christians, we need to keep this at the very front of our lives and our families and our practices. This is what Jesus' church has always been about. And by God's grace, what this church will be about. None of us are either too bad or too good for the generous mercy of God in Jesus. And the more and more that we understand that, the more and more that we apply that, the more that we will fulfill God's charge to his people that we heard about last week. Love issuing from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy in Jesus. Thank you that you pour out super abundant grace on weary, rebellious people who need it so badly. Your grace is more even than what we need. It goes well beyond our sin. It flows out through us into the world, changing everything about us. Help us, Father, to live in light of your grace in the Lord Jesus. Help us as a church to faithfully cling to you and to a good conscience before you. We need your strength and we ask it in the name of the merciful Lord Jesus, our friend and brother. Amen.